Hello again, friends. Hang on just a second. We're going to talk about the topics of grief and human suffering, but we're going to talk about them in a good way, not in a not in a bad way. I think there's some things that we can discuss that will help you if these two topics uh, impact you. For some reason, I feel compelled to discuss them as part of this week's podcast. Hello again, friends and fellow truth seekers. Mike Nicholas here with another episode of the Soul Unleashed podcast, where it's my goal to help you with questions you might have regarding the awakening of your soul, and particularly to help other left brain types like I am, ask the right questions in our search for a deeper meaning for life. And ultimately, I want to help you unleash your soul from limiting beliefs and smothering paradigms. Let's dive in with today's adventure. So this podcast today is about two subjects which might initially be considered downers or negative, but I want to talk about grief and human suffering. But I also want to tell you that the point of this is a positive point. I want to share with you my perspective about these subjects and how I've overcome the overwhelming grief and pain that I've had through some of the things I've been through with some understandings that I've gained over the past couple of years. So I want to look at grief and human suffering, though, with, from the perspective of a couple of books I've read lately. One is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and the other is A Grief Observed, which is a book by C.S. Lewis. Now, when I first started thinking about or looking at these things, I was really, really in pain after the loss of our son, wondering why God would permit this kind of thing to happen, why me, why us, why our prayers weren't answered, what kind of God would permit permit a, people to lose a child. And I realize that all of you listening to this podcast have lost somebody. Now, I can't speak to what your grief is like, so I can only speak about what it is for me. But in some cases, losing someone is not, it's different, right? When you lose an older parent or when you lose a grandparent. I was happy, for example, when my grandmother passed because she was suffering and she had led a wonderful life. And I was just happy that she, her suffering ended and that she went on to join her, her family and her relatives. The same with my mother. I was happy when she passed, I loved her to death, but she missed my father terribly and she was suffering and in pain. When my father passed, he passed about eight or ten years, eight years, I guess, before my mother did. That was a shock. He was younger, and he suffered from mesothelioma, and suddenly, boom, within a couple months, he was gone. And it was a shock to all of all of us, me and my siblings. Of course, when we lost our son a couple of years ago, even though he had been sick, it just seemed inconceivable to actually lose a child, and that was a complete shock. And all of you have been through something similar like this. And, and many of you have lost younger children. I can't imagine what that pain is like or had a stillborn child and how difficult that must be. And so the questions that you ask yourself, the questions that I ask myself are, how could this be possible? What kind of God were, would permit this kind of thing to happen? Well, in my search for answers shortly after we lost our son, one of the first books I read was by a gentleman named Mike Dooley, 
and it was called uh, the 10 things that dead people want the top 10 things that dead people want to tell you now with a title like that obviously it gets your attention and i was reading books about people who were trying to communicate with their children i had a desperate need to to know that our son was okay at that time and that that he was happy wherever he was so the top 10 things that people wanted dead people want you to tell you was very interesting what it was really was Mike Dooley's perspective about how he had learned things, and it was just a tongue-in-cheek way, really, of him sharing principles that he had come to believe, and which resonate with me, uh, through supposedly uh, dead people telling you things. Now, there really were no dead people talking, and there really were no specific dead people giving him this information. It was kind of humorous, actually, reading the, the uh, comments in... Amazon and other places where his book was published, where people were attacking him, saying, how dare you say dead people are telling you these things? Dead people aren't really telling you these things. Uh, So a lot of people missed the point of the book. However, it helped me understand a little bit about, you know, the way this works, that our son, for example, had a plan, and he planned all this out before he came into this life, and he passed when it was his time, it was what he wanted to do. The same with my mother and the same with my grandmother and all of our loved ones. And if you can believe that even even what appears to be accidents or horrible things, that there's a plan for that, nothing is by accident, it, it, I can only speak for myself. It made me feel better to understand that, that there was a structure to all this going on. Now, you know, I read a, a book not, not long ago. It was about the Katyn uh, Forest massacre in World War II, where a bunch of Polish officers were murdered, essentially, by uh, the Soviets in the Katyn Forest in Poland. And fourteen or 15,000 soldiers were killed. And it, that was terrible, and that was part of war, I guess. But what really struck me was what happened to the, the families of those soldiers, they were rounded up in Warsaw and, and other cities in Poland. And by the tens and twenties and thirties, thousands and thousands of them were put into boxcars and taken to Siberia and just dropped off in Siberia. And of course, the vast majority of them perished there. And reading that, I thought, what kind of God permits this? And, and what kind of plan could there possibly be for the lives of those children one or two or three years old, suddenly having their lives changed, their their father gone missing, police show up the door, they're put on a train, and then they die in the cold and snow of Siberia. What kind of plan? Who would plan that? And I've come to believe that there, it's still part of the plan, right? And one of the things that Mike Dooley talked about was there are countless reasons why what appear to us with our limited human senses, what appear to be, you know, quote, bad things happen to good people. Some things appear to be happening just by accident. Uh, Some things happen because they appear to be noble. Uh, But all we might see is pain and suffering. You know, someone may choose to give his or her life up. Um, In the book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, he talks about numerous cases in the concentration camps where there were men who walked around and gave away their last piece of bread 
gave away their last piece of clothing or their clothing or their blanket, knowing it was going to cost them their lives. But they that was a sense of nobility where they were at least able to claim some sense of humanity uh, prior to prior to dying. Anyway, the point is just because all we see is pain and suffering does not mean that there aren't mutual objectives that are being met, that that the souls involved in that did not plan and that they were all co-creators of what happened. I heard somebody ask about, you know, the concentration camps and, you know, how could all these people that were, I hate to keep going back to this as an example, right? But this is probably one of the, the primary examples that people think of, you know, if we manifest our lives, what did all those people do? None of those wanted to be suffering like that in a, in a concentration camp. And of course, nobody understands why that happens, but I am to the point where I can believe that there was a, they're all co-creators of that particular reality and why they were there or why their souls came here. You know, one of the things that Mike Dooley explains is that when a soul makes a decision to come here to this life, you come here not with the certainty that you're going to be a two-year-old sent to Siberia, but you come here with the understanding that there's a possibility that your life might be difficult like that. And you accept that chance, you accept that possibility happening, and it's part of what you come here to do. And, of course, we all have free will, right? So every second, every fraction of a second, the entire world is changing based upon the decisions people are making in free will. But but the possibility that you might come here and, and be part of that is something you accept before you come to this life. But anyway, let me get back to to suffering and and grief. Frankel has a number of examples in his book about suffering. Of course, he observed it in concentration camps. And he tells of one story, which I thought was pretty poignant, about a young lady. He he was a camp doctor in a number of the different camps he was in. So he was treating people that were close to death. And he said he came across a young woman that he knew would die in the next few days. He says, but when I talked to her, she was cheerful in spite of this knowledge. She said, I am grateful that fate has hit me so hard. In my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. Now I do. So that story is how he's trying to show that there is meaning to suffering, that he found meaning to suffering in the concentration camps even. But what about purpose to suffering? Frankel tells another story of a man, and this was after World War II and after he was in his profession in Vienna. He came across a man who was suffering from depression because his wife had died two years earlier. And Frankel asked him, you know, what would have happened if he had died before his wife? And the man said that it would have been meant terrible suffering for his wife. There's no way that she could have survived that. And she would have been devastated had he died first. And to which Frankel said that the man had spared his wife that suffering. And his conclusion was, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. And I have to tell you that when I was gone through the uncertainty and pain last fall, when I, when I was completely convinced that my wife was going to pass and had been done all the preparation for that, and we were prepared to to disconnect her from life support. I thought this many times. I hadn't read Frankel's book yet, but I thought many times that it's better her passing and me surviving 
than the other way around because she'd she'd be completely devastated if it was me that was in that condition and she was going to be left alone. So I understand completely what Frankel's saying here. One last thing that Frankel says, and this gets back to the point of suffering. Why do people suffer? How do we understand how, how all this how can this possibly be? And now remember, Frankel wrote this book, the, the part I'm about to read to you or discuss with you was written after the war, so it was about 1950s. But he's talking about to his class about understanding suffering. What does it mean? How how can God do this and we don't understand what's going on? How can I watch my wife waste away with cancer? How can I lose a child to cancer? How how can I suffer this kind of pain if there's a loving God? So Frankel was discussing with his group in this class about an ape that was being used to develop serum to fight polio. This was a big deal back then in the, in the 50s. And for this reason, the ape was being punctured again and again, painfully. So Frankel asked the group if the ape would ever be able to grasp the meaning of its suffering. And unanimously, the group replied that, of course, it would not. That with its limited knowledge and intelligence, it could not enter into the world of man, i.e. the only world in which the meaning of its suffering suffering would be understandable to the ape. So then Frankel said, well, what about man? Are you sure that the human world that we're experiencing right now is a terminal point in the evolution of the cosmos? Is it not conceivable that there is another dimension, a world beyond man's world, a world in which the question of an ultimate meaning of human suffering would find an answer? That someplace else beyond this dimension, what we're going through, what we're suffering is understandable. And I found that fascinating. I haven't seen that any place else in terms of books I've been reading. But of course there might be some other place, some other dimension, perhaps where my son is now, where there is an understanding of the suffering that he went through and and what meaning it had. I believe now that the, the suffering that he went through was important because it helped me start this spiritual journey and experience this soul unleashed process. And so I, I challenge you, hopefully, to be able to find meaning in the suffering that you may have experienced or witnessed and, and what good things it has brought to you. The last thing I want to talk about was C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, I, I thought, well, you know, who's Mike Dooley, right? He's just some dude that now believes this kind of stuff. And you know, Victor Frankl's pretty famous, but what does somebody that, that's respected think about all this? What about somebody who's written a lot and everybody thinks is, you know, I guess the top guy to go to if you're going to talk about these kind of things? Well, I decided to look at C.S. Lewis because I'd read a number of his books, uh, The Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, and he's, of course, very respected as a, a Christian apologist. What that means is someone who defends and explains the beliefs and doctrines of Christianity. C.S. Lewis, I always thought he was Catholic, honestly, but he wasn't Catholic. He was Anglican, English. And throughout his life, he was deeply committed to Christian beliefs, and he saw his role as a writer and thinker as being able to defend and promote those beliefs to a to a wider audience. So he wrote a lot of books about Christianity and d- defending it, basically. So what would he say about these kind of things? Well, the book I started reading by him, because it deals with the subject of grief, I thought he must have some smart things to say, 
The book is A Grief Observed. And what it is, it's about, it's a very deeply and personal personal book by C.S. Lewis. Deeply poignant is where I was going with that. But it chronicles his experience of grief and loss after the death of his wife. Her name was Joy Davidman. What's interesting about this book, and I'll spend a couple of seconds on here on it, it's very short. It's only about 70-some pages. But he wrote it under a different name. It was so personal that he didn't want the world basically to know that C.S. Lewis wrote this. And the reason was because he challenges God. He's very he's very upset. He's very angry. Uh, he's, he's grieving. And he's basically very honest in his portrayal of grief throughout the book. And he talks about the, the, the toll that it takes on him. And he goes back and forth in the book uh, towards his wife, anger, guilt, love, and the intense pain that he experienced. I should I should mention not that it's a super deal, but he was married to his wife for about four years. Uh, he he married later in life. This was her second second marriage, and he knew for a long time that she was going to pass because she had cancer. Now I I can't I, w- I would never say that his grief after you know four years of marriage can compare or it was any ways any less than the grief of somebody who's been married for as long as I have 45 years or 50 years. Uh, But my treatment of, or my thoughts about my wife's passing or as she was about to pass were a lot different from what, uh, what he describes in this book. So what I was surprised to uh, discover, frankly, was that he does not have any answers. He does not have the answers for grief and suffering all he does throughout most of the book is rail against God. One point, one point, he says, "You never know how much you really believe anything until it is until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you." And he was basically saying that he you never know what you believe really. His belief in Christianity and the things he was taught growing up until it becomes a matter of life and death to you. He said, "Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly." Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. He was not finding in religion, his Christianity, the comfort that he was seeking uh, due to the the loss of his life. And then he also dealt with uh, spirituality. He, He said, they tell me that his wife, he called her H., because that was the, the, the what he used for her in the book instead of a real name. He said, they tell me H is happy now. They tell me she is at peace. What makes them so sure of this? I don't mean that I fear the worst of all. Her last words were, I'm at peace with God. But I don't mean that. Why are they so sure that all anguish ends with death? So he wasn't even sure that she was happy where she was. And what's really interesting is he went on to say that he was suffering so much, he was in such pain, such pain that he wrote this book about the pain he was in. But I never thought about this either, but he basically saying, how do, how do we know that she's not in the same pain missing him where she is? So he said, why should the separation, which so agonizes the lover who is left behind, be painless to the lover who departs? So he wasn't sure where she was or how she was doing. Even though he was a Christian apologist and had written books about all this, his his faith in where she was and that she was happy was not present. And I found that 
that very interesting. To round that out, he said, so where is she now? That is, in what place is she at the present time? But if H is not a body, and the body I loved is certainly no longer she, then she is in no place at all. And then finally, I guess one passage which really indicated his his utter desolation about all this and his belief in, in God controlling this. He said, I am more afraid that we are really rats in a trap or, worse still, rats in a laboratory. And then he said, what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers H and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Time after time, when he seemed most gracious, meaning God, he was really preparing the next torture. And to be completely fair to C.S. Lewis, I should say that he does come to some reconciliation in chapter 4 of this little book, where time passes, basically, and he comes to accept that his wife is happy with God somewhere. He has kind of a spiritual experience, which he he's careful to describe in the fourth chapter, because he doesn't want it to appear that he believes in anything other than what he already has professed. But he says, one moment last night, he kind of had the sense that she was she was with him, a small sound close at hand, like a chuckle of laughter. He said, I'm not mad enough to take such such an experience. I'm not mad enough to take such an experience as evidence of anything. <laughs> and all it did is open the possibility in his mind, the idea that I or any mortal at any time may be utterly mistaken as to the situation he is really in. Meaning, there may be something that he just does not understand beyond this life. And that's as close as he comes to describing what I've come to now believe, you know, through a lot of things that Mike Dooley has written. There sure is, I shouldn't use the term, there sure as hell is, but there sure as heck is another reality beyond this current one that we're living. And even though he had this experience where he thought he was with his wife for a few minutes, and he talks about it a little bit later too, he, he's reluctant to say that it's anything more than something he doesn't understand. Uh, he, he, he won't go to the, the, the dead can still see things or that uh, his wife can be in any way contacted. So that's the C.S. Lewis perspective. And just to wrap this up, my point is that understanding that we're on a we're all on a journey we're on multiple journeys we come here many times and that your loved one whether it's a, a small child or a stillborn child or a grown child or your parents or whatever they come here understanding the possibilities we come here understanding the possibilities that our lives may be this or that or short or painful but it's all part of the deal we we come here with that understanding nothing is by chance and I'm not the first one to say this. I've heard this many times, but I've really come to believe it, that we we need to believe that life happens for us, not to us. We're not victims. We're not victims of circumstance. We're not victims of whatever nature throws at us. We're not victims of other people and how they treat us. We are able to influence our lives and what happens with us. And so that perspective has helped me understand more about the passing of our son and it's helped me feel much better about life in general. Now I I still miss him and I'm sure you still miss the loved ones that you've known, 
but it has made things much easier in terms of understanding. So that is the point of today's podcast, and I'm way over what I originally intended to do for time, but I I just want to talk about these two subjects because uh, they were something that was on my heart. Thank you again. Look forward to uh, talking to you next week, next Tuesday. Again, please reach out to me, Mike at MikeNicholas.com or my website, MikeNicholas.com. And if you'd be kind enough to leave a review for this podcast or any questions or comments, I I read them all. I would really appreciate it. Thank you for now. Bye-bye.